Let's read Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 33. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching, But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the uh, Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in the stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week... At early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all of these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told, them these, who told these things to the apostles. But the, these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marvelling at what had happened. Uh, Let me just pray and then Patty will come up and talk to us. 
Dear Lord, we thank you for this time that you've given us today to consider the resurrection of Jesus. Give us clear minds and the ability to focus now as we turn to your word. And please enable Patty to speak clearly and faithfully. Amen. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? That's what we're going to be talking about today. Let me um, say to start with that if you're here in the hope that I'm going to try and prove to you that Jesus rose from the dead, then you're going to be disappointed because I'm not actually able to prove to you that Jesus rose from the dead. And so maybe you're a Christian who's come and wants uh, to be reminded of that. Maybe you're a sceptic. You may have come at the invitation of one of your Christian friends or you may have just sort of seen the advertising. Um, Sadly, you're going to be a little bit disappointed because I'm not actually able to prove to you that Jesus rose from the dead. However, what I'd like to do in the next 25 minutes is try and present evidence that shows that it is quite likely if not very likely, that the best explanation for the historical evidence that we have is that Jesus rose from the dead. Notice that I've used two different types of language. And so by way of our initial considerations, this is a little bit of the ground that we initially need to clear. See, the task for today is to try and look at the claim that Christianity has made and has made for the last couple of thousand years, a claim that's central to Christianity that Jesus came back from the dead. But the first thing we need to try and establish is whether or not Jesus was actually dead. Because otherwise, there's no point in looking at whether or not he rose from the dead if either he never existed and B, he never died. So we're going to start by doing that. And one of the things that I'd like you to try and do is be open to the evidence that's presented for you. Uh, For some who are Christians, you may have heard this evidence before, but you may have never actually considered the weight of the evidence. For those in the room who aren't Christians who are perhaps a little bit more sceptical, for you I think it's more of a question of plausibility. It's not so much a question of, is this true?, It's a prior question. Might this be true? So what I want to do today is ask you to consider the evidence. I'm not asking you to suspend anything. Don't suspend your belief. Don't put your science brain to one side. Don't. What I'm asking you to do is to consider the evidence and ask the question, might this be plausible? Anthony Flew, the famous atheist who passed away a number of years ago, his rhetoric, if you know of Anthony Flew, was that he would follow the evidence where it led him. So if you're an atheist or a sceptic, will you do the same thing and follow the evidence where it leads you? For all of us though, one of the things we ought not to do is just accept the evidence either on blind faith or because someone up the front like me just tells you that that's what is. Christian or not Christian, sceptic or believer, what I want to encourage you to do is go and check out the evidence for yourself. There's a couple of really helpful books that I'll refer to uh, throughout the talk that you might then like to use to do that. Some of them are Christian sources, others of them are non-Christian sources. So to start with, let's uh, look at the way in which we know things because it's important that we establish this and some of this was looked at last week when we looked at, uh, if you were here last week, when we looked at uh, Christianity and miracles. There's a number of different ways in which we actually acquire knowledge. I've listed four of them there on the board. The first is scientific. We acquire knowledge through the scientific method. Now in this case, the scientific method has some constraints. Please don't hear that as a weakness. That's actually one of its strengths. That it operates under two main premises. Firstly, that things are observable and to some extent there's a constancy to things and secondly, that things are repeatable. However, that's not the only way we acquire knowledge, although some might say these days, and particularly in the last 20 or 30 years, the notion of scientism really has now been, I guess, hypothesised or proposed as really the only way you can know things. But let me suggest that for many decades, actually in hundreds of years, you've known things through other ways. What about rational knowledge? Rational knowledge here, I'm thinking of mathematical proofs. See, rational knowledge is that knowledge which is derived from a system where the rules themselves provide consistency and dictate certain outcomes. 
If you're trying to prove something mathematically, you're not using the scientific method. You're actually using a system of proofs, but actually you do acquire knowledge. And you acquire what you would call rational knowledge. Once again, constrained, but great strength. The third type of knowledge is historical knowledge. Now, this is knowledge which is derived from events that have taken place in the past. Now, in this case, this type of knowledge comes about through using a thing called historical method. Much like scientific knowledge is derived from using the scientific method, likewise, historical knowledge comes about from using a historical method. Now, in this case, while we don't have a lot of time to sort of dig much into the theory behind this, you can go and grab a, even a fairly introductory historical textbook and look at the methods that are used. It goes to the validity of the sources that we use historically. So you may afterwards, for example, come and have a conversation with me and tell me about the best party that you've ever been to, which was last Saturday night. And I might be doubtful because I've been to some pretty good parties in my time, uh, perhaps not recently, but maybe when I was your age. And so I want to say, well, actually, I think I've been to the best parties. Try and show me that the party that you went to was the best party. You tell me all about it, it's all wonderful, and I say, I don't really believe you. So you say, well, actually, I've got some other witnesses. Let's bring them in as well. And so I hear from them, maybe independently, and it sort of seems like their story matches it. Notice that I'm using a number of independent sources who all speak about the same event. It's not a scientific inquiry. We can't replay the party exactly to then observe it and find out why it was the best or why it was the... Historical method does a similar sort of thing. It interrogates the sources. Now, keep in mind here, one of the other things is we don't always have complete sources for things that took place. Fourth type of knowledge, revelation. Now, this type of knowledge comes about and it's often knowledge that can't be derived from the other three sources. In this case, I'm thinking my middle name. That's knowledge. You might not think that it's actually worth knowing. I, I think it is uh, because it says something about me. How would you acquire the knowledge about my middle name? Well, you might choose to ask one of my family. They might know it. They might be willing to tell you it. You would still have to trust that actually what they've told you is my middle name, but that would be one way that you might find it out. You might try and get a copy of my birth certificate and sort of do a direct inquiry of it, or I might actually tell you what it is. So it's not come about through scientific method. It's not actually a historical piece of information, nor is it rational. There's no rule that you can apply to me that just spits out my middle name, and you can therefore know that it's true. So this type of knowledge is that which is revealed to you. So when we come to talk about the resurrection, we can't actually prove that Jesus rose from the dead. The only type of knowledge, arguably, and even sort of theoretically, in which you can prove anything is actually rational knowledge. You cannot even prove, to use the stricter sense of the word, scientific knowledge. You can produce a hypothesis and test it repeatedly and say, as a result, it is most likely or highly likely that these things will happen. Rational knowledge is the only knowledge technically, talk to me about it afterwards if you disagree, that you can actually prove anything. I can't prove the resurrection took place. But what I want to try and do is show the likelihood or the reliability of the evidence that we have and the best explanation for it. So I want to do this by doing a little exercise. I grab some, if you'd like to participate, grab a mobile device, you need to be connected to the internet, laptop, tablet, tablet, mobile phone, whatever it is that you use. If you go to this URL down here, tinyurl.com slash pm5thursday, I'd like you to answer a question for me. It's got um, six parts to it. And what I've done is I've listed six historical events. And I'd like you to try and tell me the likelihood of those events occurring. I'll give you a minute. You can, I have no way of knowing who participates in the survey. I have no way of tracking. It's completely anonymous. 
Uh, you can choose to participate or not participate. And in a minute, I'll give you about 30 seconds to fill that in. And then we're going to look at the results on the screen and we'll see what it shows us. Does anyone still need the URL? Again, anyone need some more time? Don't look at the results on the screen and let that affect your decision. Make an independent decision. Be bold. Stick to something. Okay, let's have a quick look. Here we go. Here are the results from our little survey. Let's see if I can just zoom in a little bit. Here we go. Okay, so this is what it shows us on the screen. We've got a couple of people in the room who are only somewhat certain that they're actually here. Um, <laughs> and that's okay, uh, because we had someone on Tuesday who was very doubtful they were actually here. Um, so if, if that's you and you're having a mild existential crisis, then you're, you're in good company with a very small number of other people from the week. But you'll notice here that actually we've got a range of responses for a range of these supposed historical events. You'll notice that some of the statements I've made, I've tried to take away some bias or some subjectivity to them. So you'll notice that the second statement, the collapse of the Twin Towers. Notice that I've not tried to load that up with terrorists brought down the Twin Towers. Because you may have some who would be quite happy to say, yes, the Twin Towers collapsed, but I don't think it was brought about as a result of a terrorist action. It was a conspiracy theory or the government did it or whatever. Do you know what I mean? So one of the things that we need to do when we're actually doing some historical inquiry is we need to make sure we refine the statements about which we're going to demand some evidence to see whether or not the evidence matches up with the statement. You'll notice that for some of them, they may be things we've never even thought about. So King Arthur and the witches being burned at Salem, you might have never heard about the Salem trials and whether or not witches were burned or not burned. And so actually, not surprisingly, you're either somewhat doubtful or somewhat certain or uncertain or... And notice that we have a reasonable correlation between those who would say, talk about the likelihood of the existence of Jesus and that he was resurrected. Now, if you'd like to go and do some inquiry, particularly about these middle two, King Arthur and the Witches, of whether or not they actually occurred historically, I'll leave you to do that. I'm not going to give you the answer to that question. And uh, we will now get back on and see if we can make this work. Nice. Okay. So what I want to try and do now is I want to try and work through four, maybe five if we've got time, broad areas of inquiry of evidence. I want to talk about the death of Jesus by crucifixion, that he was buried after his death, that there's a historical claim to an empty tomb, and there were post-resurrection appearances. If we get time, we'll look at one who was a radical change who'd been persecuting the church. So let's jump into it. What sort of evidence... Yeah, we've looked at that. Thank you, Prezi. What sort of evidence do we have by, uh, that Jesus died by crucifixion? Well, let's try and establish whether or not Jesus actually existed historically. What's the likelihood that this figure called Jesus existed in history? Well, we have a number of sources that are what we call Greco-Roman or external sources... And this is from Pliny the Younger, about 100 years, or about 80 to 90 years after Jesus supposedly existed. I'll let you read the quote there about what it tells us. Quote from Tacitus, another historian. Now, these two references are, we're not even opening the Bible at this point. All we're doing is we're looking at other sources in history. In this case, we've got Greco-Roman sources. Notice they don't tell us very much, actually. 
but they mention this figure or this individual called Christ. That tells us a little bit more about that as well. What if we go for a source slightly closer to the time? This is Josephus, a Jewish historian. Uh, From what we know of Josephus, he wasn't favourably disposed towards Christians, the early Christians. He writes with a little bit of bias, but nevertheless, this is what he writes in one of his histories, Antiquities. It's about 20 years closer. He's writing in about 94 AD. Now, if you're aware of this particular quote, or you've read it before, you'll be aware that some historians doubt some of the content of this quote. Some would say Christians embellished or added things to this quote within a couple of hundred, if not several hundred years after this was supposedly written. I have removed those references that are debated. And you'll notice there that in a number of places there's sort of three full stops. If you actually go and look at the quote, sometimes you'll find that there's a full reference there. Treat them with some hesitancy would be what I'd say. But I want to say, let's strip it back to what the majority of historians agree was the original quote from Tacitus. We still actually learn something about this man named Jesus, don't we? We learn a little bit more about this man Jesus from the Greco-Roman sources. When we compile the Greco-Roman sources and the Jewish sources with a number of other external, I'm not even going anywhere near the Bible yet, sources, such as the quotes by the first century historian Thallus in Julius Africanus, the letter to Marabar Serapion in about 75 AD, the quote in Lucian of Samosta. This is what we know. We've not even gone anywhere near the text of the New Testament. These are the things that we could establish about this person, Jesus. He lives in Palestine. He has a family, a mother and a brother that we know of. He was a noted teacher and miracle. Put the word miracle, if you like, in inverted commas. Uh, Strange and wondrous deeds is one of the translations that's used. Nowadays, the Christians might say, well, he was working miracles. So I'm quite happy to say he was a noted teacher who did strange and wondrous things. Some thought him to be a king. He's executed on a cross under Pontius Pilate. Both Jewish and Roman leaders somehow were involved in his death, but we don't exactly know how. These external sources don't go into great detail. Some unexplainable and strange things happen at his death, not just during his lifetime. And the Christians continue to worship him after his death. Not even dealing with the Bible here. This is in the historical record. Many of these sources are now in the public domain. Uh, A couple of little books that might be helpful. This is a book called Can We Trust What the Gospels Say? This actually lists in in some detail the references. You can actually go and look at what it says. If you'd like a little bit more detail, there's a book by John Dixon called The Christ Files. John has a little paragraph or two on each of the sources that go to build up this, what we would call initial conclusions about Jesus. What do we see? The conclusion is that it is very likely, highly likely, that a person called Jesus existed who was killed around about 26 to 36 AD on a cross under Pontius Pilate. So what then can we say about the claim to resurrection? Well, we first need to establish whether or not Jesus, not only was he dead, but he was actually buried. Because if the body of Jesus was taken off the cross and just thrown away, disposed of, Clearly, that would mean when you went to the tomb, it was empty. The body's gone. Well, of course it has because it was never put in there in the first place. So actually, we now need to establish the body of Jesus was actually put in a tomb to be able to then see whether or not what is the likelihood, the claim that is made, that on the Sunday when they went to the tomb, the body was no longer there. We've got four particular sources that we can use, or sorry, we've got four particular statements we can make And the first statement goes towards the Gospel sources. Now, it's worth saying here something about the Gospel sources because some sceptics will say, well, we can't use the Gospels because they're not actually valid historical documents. If if that is the point of view that you hold, you are actually standing opposed to many 
many historians, both those who are Christians and not Christians, many of whom, when they've actually studied history, not just because they're a professor of another discipline, many of them actually treat the, the New Testament accounts as valid historical sources. Now, the thing to remind ourselves here is if you pick up a Bible, if you've got one or if you've seen one, it looks like it's one book. But actually, each of the Gospels are four independent historical sources, which means they can be treated independently. It means they will be a little bit different in the content they provide, but they do actually talk about very similar events. Firstly, what we know is the Gospel sources all provide a consistent account as to the burial of Jesus. That Jesus was buried is actually clear in all of these four independent sources. Now, yes, I recognise that two of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, probably used an independent prior source that we don't have. So you might say, well, actually, there's really only three sources. Sure, use three, use four. The Gospels are a consistent source. Secondly, we're told that Joseph of Arimathea requests the body and that was read for us in Luke's account. Now, this ruling council was strongly opposed to Jesus So this is unlikely to be a later invention of the Christians. It would actually be embarrassing to them if they had to put this in and said, hey, let's just make up the fact that Joseph took the body because it would go contrary to what may have been taking place. So thirdly, given the historical sources we have, we have no other competing burial story. It's not as if there's contention as to which tomb Jesus was placed in and we've sort of got to pick the best one out of all our historical sources. Fourthly, Jesus' followers, and notice this was read for us in Luke 23, actually follow the body from the cross to see which tomb it goes in. It's not then a sort of a word of mouth thing that says, oh, by the way, they buried him in the fourth tomb down the corner, round the back and down the... Oh, okay, I guess I can find it on Sunday in the dark. Now, actually, not surprisingly, it's the women who go and follow the body to ensure they know where the body has been laid. Why? Because they're very keen to come back on the following Sunday and prepare the body. Second piece of evidence the body was buried. Third broad piece of evidence, the empty tomb. See, the following Sunday, the sources recount for us that the tomb is found empty. What evidence do we have for this and what's the likelihood that the evidence shows us this? Well, firstly, in Mark's Gospel, it's recorded for us and Mark's Gospel arguably is one of the earliest Gospels that was written, probably about 65 or 70 AD. And the story that we read is simple and lacks embellishment. To give you an illustration of this, I'm going to put up two accounts. The first one, this is from the Gospel of Peter, which the earliest dating we've got is about 200 AD. That's the earliest we think. Just have a read through it and this is one of the accounts, a Gospel of Peter account, but it's not actually as likely. It's not as a trusted historical source, partly because it's difficult to verify. And secondly, as you read it, it appears to have been embellished from some of the earlier accounts that we've got. So it wasn't surprising if you wanted to make your story appear more significant or grander that you'd take the original thing and try and just make it sound a little bit better. Come back to the greatest party that you've ever held. As you're talking to me about it, you might just toss in a few things that didn't really happen. Maybe there were 50 or 70 people there and you tell me there's 150 people there because it just makes you sound a bit more popular. Historians think this is what was going on with the Gospel of Peter. You read it and there's the heads of two people, presumably they're angels, that reach to heaven and the one who is led by them, overpasses the heavens. That's a pretty impressive picture. And then the cross comes out behind them and starts talking. What's the likelihood that that took place? Now read Mark's account. And this is the earlier account by a number of 100 or 150 years or thereabouts. As you read the account, it just seems plain. 
It almost seems, if you like, factual, if I can use that word, it lacks embellishment. Now, the reason why I use these two as an example is to say, actually, the earliest sources historians believe are that. They lack embellishment, which actually means they're much more reliable as a historical source. Thirdly, uh, so that's the first one about the empty tomb. Secondly, let's then see two other considerations for the empty tomb. The tomb was first discovered empty by women. Now, some Christians have advocated the argument that says this uses the historical criterion of embarrassment, that if there's an account in your sort of narrative that feels a bit embarrassing, that goes to its historical reliability. Otherwise, surely you'd just take it out at the point at which you were writing it. Well, some historians dispute that and say, well, the reason why the Christians would say it is because the testimony of women wasn't considered valid in the first century. Now, other historians have tried to rebut that and say, well, actually, the testimony of women was valid. It just wasn't used as frequently. And so you may infer, therefore, that the testimony of women was not as valid. Whether or not this is a criterion of embarrassment moment, this is still important for us. And here's why. Why is it that the women are recorded as being the ones who find the tomb? I think the account has the hallmarks of fulfilling the role that the women had intended. Their intention, remember, on the Friday was that they would come back on the Sunday. They went to see where the body was laid so that they would go back two days later on the Sunday and put spices on the body. It would then seem unusual if the count had the male disciples first turning up to the tomb because naturally you'd say, but hang on, I thought the women were going to go and do the anointing of the body, as was their custom and practice in the day. No, actually, that the tomb is discovered by women is important and goes to a high likelihood that the tomb was discovered empty. Thirdly, in some of the other Gospel accounts, you see the appearance of the grave clothes, that it appears as though, from what they describe, the body is literally just sort of lifted up through the grave clothes. They used a long piece of cloth that was wrapped around the body and that's the form in which the early disciples find it laying in the tomb. But fourthly, let us also consider this by way of evidence that the tomb was empty. The Jews, as recorded for us in Matthew 28, make this allegation. The Jewish allegation is that the Jewish leaders seek to allege that the disciples have stolen the body. Let's think about that for a minute. Let's say you propose that the disciples have stolen the body. What are you then saying about the tomb? The tomb has to be empty. Arguably, the Jews are the first ones who propose, the Jewish leaders who had Jesus killed, are the first ones that propose an empty tomb. Now, the reason they give for it is not resurrection. The reason they say is that the disciples must have taken it. We know from Justin Martyr in about 150 AD when he writes that this particular allegation was still going on and was being talked about by the Jews of the day. Point five. Within several weeks of the death of Jesus, the early public declaration, in this case by the Apostle Peter, is that the tomb was empty. You can read this. This is from Luke's historical account in Acts chapter 2. Peter claims that the empty tomb is on display and he does it by making reference to the tomb of David, the bones of their ancestor who would have still been in the tomb. What Peter is saying is, the claim that we're making is that Jesus has been risen from the dead, the tomb is empty. Go and see for yourself. Five points of evidence that point to a high likelihood that the tomb was empty on that Easter, first Easter Sunday. But despite this evidence, I don't think it's the empty tomb which is most compelling and actually the thing that is most compelling are the post-resurrection appearances and it is this to which we now turn and which we will finish. So what is it that Jesus looked like in terms of these post-resurrection appearances? Well, it's worth saying here that on a number of occasions, 
to different groups of people, the early sources indicate that the man Jesus in resurrected bodily form appeared to people. That he appears to numbers of different groups of people at a number of different times lessens the likelihood of a consistent hallucination, either a mass hallucination or the same hallucination to a number of different people. What did Jesus look like? The accounts indicate that his appearance was in bodily form. He's recognisable as the person of Jesus. He talks and relates to those whom he did prior to his death. He eats with them. What else can we say about it? Well, we can see here that he appears to this group of people as recorded in a number of different sources. I've, recorded, I've just indicated the people to whom he appears. Peter, the twelve, in the region of Galilee, the women, up to 500 people. Now, there's some ambiguity as to whether that was 500 people in one large group or in a number of different groups at a number of different times, such that over that period, 500 people had seen him. And to the man named Saul, who then later became Paul. In brackets, I've given you the source... And notice that they're all independent sources. We don't have the appearance of Jesus just in one of our historical sources. We have them in multiple sources, some of which, in this case Matthew, Mark and Luke, three independent historical sources all attest to the same appearing in the region of Galilee. But what then were the disciples expecting? Because one of the questions with regard to the post-resurrection appearances is, but maybe Jesus' disciples just saw what they had hoped for. They'd hoped that Jesus would come back from the dead And so then they saw Jesus back from the dead. However, consider the position the disciples were in. Their leader has just died and if they thought that he was the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish Messiah was actually going to come and be king and rule forever. Then that expectation has just been blown out of the water. Secondly, that Jesus died on a cross indicates that he was considered a criminal, not a king. And thirdly, The Jewish belief about the afterlife, that great day of the resurrection, which was actually a commonly held belief of the time, was not that one particular individual would come back from the dead, but that actually everybody would be risen from the dead and at that point it would be the end of the world. So when the disciples stand up and talk about the man Jesus being resurrected, they are actually going counter to all of their commonly held beliefs about the Jewish religion. They're saying that Jesus in some senses, was not the expected Messiah. He didn't come as the king and kick out the Romans and rule over over Israel. He comes and dies. He doesn't come as a king, he comes and is killed as a criminal. And thirdly, he comes as an individual who comes back from the dead. That then is the claim that they're making. It's actually quite different from the Jewish expectation at the time. Notice also what it means though. What it also means is that the disciples believed they'd seen the risen Lord Jesus. They'd claimed that Jesus had risen. Now, the evidence that we've got from this comes from three different sources. It comes from the Apostle Paul, who writes as early as about 55 AD, maybe 53 AD in the letter to the Galatians. Paul provides strong evidence for this because he'd actually gone and spoken with the disciples after he'd stopped persecuting the church. Secondly... Within about five years of Jesus' resurrection, there was an oral tradition circulating, a creed, if you like, which Paul recounts for us in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus has died, was buried and risen on the third day. The third independent source we've got is the written Gospels themselves, which, yes, were written sometime after the event, but nevertheless, as independent sources, the disciples claim that Jesus has has risen. And notice the impact that it has on their life. They believed it 
and it changed their life and for many of them they were willing to suffer horribly and die for that belief. But lastly, and if you'll give me one minute, I think this is almost one of the most compelling evidences. You might have expected, for example, particularly if you're a sceptic, in light of the evidence that the friends of Jesus are far more likely to believe in his resurrection. But what about one of Jesus' worst enemies? The man Saul starts persecuting the early church but then claims to have seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ and his life radically changes. This is one who was going around killing Christians, denouncing that Jesus is risen from the dead. However, consistent with his personal witness and testimony, he sees the risen Lord Jesus and in a number of his letters recounts that conversion experience. What else can bring about an explanation for the change in Paul's attitude and behaviour? How likely is it that Paul's testimony ought to be considered valid as an explanation for the radical change in his behaviour. So, we're left with this question. So what? Big deal. Well, the question we need to address is, given this evidence, what best explains all of these things? What best explains the evidence that the burial of Jesus was in a nut that he died that he was buried in a known location, the empty tomb on the Sunday, the post-resurrection experiences, the radical change in behaviour of the Apostle Paul and the expansion of the followers of Jesus willing to go and die and suffer. The best explanation is that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. That is the thing that has the strongest explanatory power for all of the evidence that we have before us. Is it a proof? No, it's not. Because you can't actually prove that Jesus rose from the dead. Is it the most likely And best explanation? Yes, friends, it is. Which means you can actually have great confidence that it took place. But what's the implication of this? Well, the implication for the Christians is that the resurrection is a central part of the Christian message. It's a central part of the Christian belief. It indicates to us that Jesus in his resurrection restores humanity to a right relationship with God. It establishes Jesus as a ruler over the entire earth to whom every single individual will be personally accountable one day. That, friends, is what's at stake in the claim that Jesus rose from the dead. So that's why, if you're a Christian here today, I want to encourage you to have great confidence in the evidence. Perhaps today has given you more information to go away and think about. Think more clearly about actually how you would answer the question when someone says to you, but I don't think Jesus really did rise from the dead, or it's all just a myth. But secondly, if you're here today and you're perhaps quite sceptical, My challenge to you actually is consider the evidence. Go and investigate for yourself. Follow a consistent line of inquiry and see whether or not the conclusion you come to is one that hundreds and thousands, if not millions of people, have come to over thousands of years.